Hello, fellow soil lovers. This is Elaine Ingham, and you're listening to The Probiotic Life. This podcast is where we explore the intricate relationships between human health, soil health, and ecological systems. Join me now for another exploratory conversation on the probiotic life. Hello, hello, once again, one and all. Welcome to the probiotic life. If you are interested in the health of your microbiome, if you are interested in the health of the biome, the ecological systems around you and in you and on you, then this is the podcast for you. Today, we're talking about soil with none other than Dr. Elaine Ingham. Dr. Elaine Ingham is one of my heroes. She first really helped me to understand why soil biology is important. And in fact, she helped me to understand all the different kinds of soil biology. There is a vast number of microbes under your feet at this very moment. There is so many different interactions that go on underground. And that's what we're talking about today. Life in the soil. So, again, we're talking more about about agriculture in this one. And I really want to hit home that agriculture and soil is directly related to our health and to the health of our whole world. And that's why we get into this. And Dr. Elaningham has written many papers on all aspects of the soil and its biology. So you can check out uh, what she's doing at soilfoodweb.com and there's a few other links uh, that she mentions in there that I'll put up in the show notes. So for now, you might want to take your notepads out if you have an opportunity to because she covers lots of things. And let's listen to this interview about life in the soil. Today, my guest uh, was the Associate Professor at the Oregon State University, Chief Research Scientist at Rodale Institute, and has her own organization, the Soil Food Web, Inc. Welcome to the show, Dr. Elaine Ingham. Uh, Glad to be here. I hope I got that right. (laughs) Yeah, Dr. Ingham. (laughs) Yeah. Um, there's a long list of things you can go through, and it's all just mostly boring. So <laughs> keeping it short, sweet, and to the point is the best thing to do. Yes, but the point is that you know a lot about soil microbes and compost. Been working on it for mm, probably about 45 years. Wow. Um, which uh, kind of lets you know how old I am. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So thanks for your time and uh, thanks for coming on the show. Um, you know, the show is all about the probiotic life. It's about creating life around us. And so um, we've talked to some people who are environmental scientists, uh, tree pathologists, 
um, some of the guys that are doing Korean natural farming, um, all that sort of stuff, dealing with microbes and how it relates to our health. So um, before we get started on that, would you like to just share with us a little bit about uh, where you are now and how you came to this point? Um, yeah, getting to this point would take quite a while. So I'll again, try the to keep it kind version. of short and sweet. Yeah. Um, what I am doing now is I am the president of Soil Food Web Incorporated, and we have classes where we teach people um, to uh, about the soil biology, how to replenish those organisms, what those organisms actually do in the soil, help them learn how to um, replenish and bring back that biology so they can gain the benefits uh, that they should be getting from having this life in the soil. Um, when you go back, when I was a kid, you know, go back mm, many years ago, um, if you asked a soil scientist or you asked an agronomist, um, why was soil life important? Was it really necessary? And their answer would typically be something along the lines of, well, you know, soil life is important, but, uh, but we're not really sure what for, um, biology just returns to the soil. As soon as you disturb the soil, it just it just comes back all by itself. You don't have to worry about it. We don't really know what it does. It's really probably not that important. And would start talking about the chemicals and the way water moves through the soil. And so, of course, when um, I was um, a graduate student, had just finished up my degree in marine microbiology at Texas A&M, my husband and I were um, we both graduated at the same time with our master's degree. We were looking for a university that would give both of us uh, research assistantships. And it turned out that Colorado State University was interested in both of us, uh, would pay us to do our, our PhDs, basically. But both of us would have to switch to soil biology, myself in soil microbiology, my husband in soil nematology. And it's kind of a, a, a shock and a surprise when you start working with soil, when you've been working in this nice, clean system where it's not hard at all to see the organisms that you're dealing with. So my PhD work was to determine how to measure bacteria and fungi and protozoa and, of course, then nematodes as well, um, trying not to have to use different samples for all those different sets of microorganisms and making a, an assay that would be simple and easy to use instead of having to identify each and every individual species of bacteria and fungi, protozoa, and nematodes when you're looking at is your soil healthy or not. And there was no comprehension. There was no understanding of why these organisms were really in the soil and whether they interacted with each other and how much did they do and interact with the plant. And the group of people that my husband started working with at the Natural Resource Ecology Lab, that was their point, was that they these organisms have to be in the soil for a reason. Mother Nature doesn't keep something on that has no purpose and no point that plays no role in the ecosystem. So they had to be doing something. What was that something? 
And so for his research, he really started the demonstration of showing that when we get all of these organism groups in the highest diversity possible back into the soil, now plants can obtain nutrition, the nutrients that they require, without having to have pesticides or inorganic fertilizers being applied that this biology protects the root systems, both um, the root systems as well as the above ground parts of the plant. So you don't need pesticides. You don't have problems with diseases and pests. That these organisms cycle nutrients from the crystalline structure of the sand, the silt, the clays, the rocks, the pebbles into plant available forms. This is how nature has been doing this for approximately oh, 3.5 to 4 billion years on this planet, all without the help of human beings applying inorganic fertilizers or pesticides, that this biology in the soil builds structure within the soil, allowing oxygen and water and roots to grow as deep as they can, and that we have a massive amount of mythology about soil and how it works and how it functions when you don't understand soil biology. So most agronomists, most soil scientists really had no clue how soil was actually working. So uh, that's probably one of the, the biggies for me, um, you know, how we've got to get everybody understanding all of these things. Mm-hmm. And that's interesting. Um, you know, we, I just mentioned before that I'm in Perth, Western Australia, and um, as you noted, there's a lot of people here who say that the the soil is gutless. It has nothing left in it. It's an ancient soil. Um, and one of the common practices that we do here is to um, add clay, either kaolin clay or bentonite clay, and um, usually add those trace minerals in there with it. Um, so I'd be interested to hear your comments on that. Yeah. Yeah, it's uh, what we find is that adding clay or adding silt or adding sand, adding mineral components is really absolutely not necessary. There have been many soil scientists who have gone around the world and collected soil from everywhere, including Australia, including all these ancient soils. And when they start looking at the total mineral content of those materials, they're not different from other places on the planet. What's lacking are the soluble nutrients. That's why soils people call these soils poor or ancient. They're, you know, played out somehow. They they don't have the soluble nutrients present in that material, but they're chock full of nitrogen, phosphorus, sulfur, magnesium, calcium, sodium, potassium, iron, zinc, boron, silica. There, all those mineral nutrients are indeed present mm. in your those soils. And What's lacking is the ability to move those not plant available forms into a plant available form. And the only way to do that is to have the proper biology in the soil. And really that's what you're lacking in soil that has been degraded a great deal. The biology, the bacteria, the fungi, the protozoa, the nematodes, microarthropods, the earthworms have been destroyed. And there is no organic matter left in that soil to feed those microorganisms. 
Organisms require food. <laughs> oh, surprise, human beings require food. And if you don't have any food, um, I guess we would call your house a degraded place because there's no human beings in there because they can't stay alive because they have no food. So the simple thing to do is make certain that we add back that biology and we add back the organic matter that allows those organisms to do their job. They won't do their job if they don't have something to eat. So how do you replenish the biology in the soil? How do you get that organic matter back into the soil? Well, if you're pouring on inorganic fertilizers and you're pouring on toxic chemicals, you're killing the organisms before they can ever be reestablished. And it does mean that those chemical companies are going to continue making a whole bunch of money, your money, mm -hmm. when in fact you should be spending your money on getting this biology back into the soil. Doesn't this sound just like a human gut biome story? Yeah, definitely. Where yep. we've been... been Yep, been told, we've been told to take these antibiotics and, oh, you've got a problem organism. You've got to nuke everything. You destroy everything. And then your digestive system is supposed to function normally once you've stripped it of all of that life that has to be there for you to function normally. Well, it's exactly the same way in the soil. We have stripped the soil of that biology. And if you don't have biology and the food to feed those organisms, it's not soil, it's dirt. And that's what's happened mm. in the area around Perth is that biology has been destroyed. Now, where are we going to get it back from? How do you put those organisms back into the soil? And how do you make certain that there's enough organic matter in that soil? Typically, what we find is you have to have at least 3% organic matter present in a soil before you can even have a prayer of these organisms becoming self-sustaining. You've got to have plants constantly replenishing that organic matter, but as you get the organic matter back and all of that biology, then this becomes a self-sustaining system once again. But we've got to reach that threshold first. Um, your comments, your question also reminded me of some work that we did in um, North and South Dakota where we had growers that we were working with and uh, we invited the local USDA Extension Service person to come out and take a look at the soil in, and it wasn't soil, it was dirt, but, you know, come out and take a look at our soil and we would like you to tell us what has to be done to make this a productive field. So the USDA person, the US Department of Agriculture extension agent comes out and, and looks at it and it says, oh, and he says, oh, this is really bad soil. This is extremely poor. Um, you're not gonna be able to grow anything in here because it's just lacking in uh, nitrogen, it's lacking in phosphorus, it's lacking in sulfur and calcium and, and all these things. And so I said, okay, so exactly what kind of soil is? What, what would you classify this soil as? And he said, this is pure sand. There, there is no silt. There is no clay. This is just sand. And most of it's going to blow away if you try to grow a crop on here. And we asked him to give us a recommendation for what we would have to add to that dirt in order to get a plant to grow. 
and it was um, 800 pounds per acre of nitrogen fertilizer, nitrate fertilizer. Um, it, it was three tons of lime, half a ton of gypsum. It was, you know, like a 150 pounds per acre of phosphate fertilizer. And when the people I was working with heard that whole list, they were, it's going to cost us thousands of dollars to add all of this material into the into the sand. Um, and we're probably, there's probably no way that we can recover those costs because we're not going to make that money on the crop that we're planning to put in here. And I said, well, okay, just remember what the chemical world described to you as what you had to do. Now, instead, what we're going to do is we're going to take some of your weeds, we're going to take some of your woody uh, plant material, the stalks from previous crops, uh, um, wood from the um, hedgerows, um, from trees, from your wood lot. Um, we're going to get some manure from um, some of the cattle um, operations surrounding your um, farm. We're going to um, mow down a little bit of the lucerne or alfalfa, as we call it in the United States. Um, and we're going to make really good compost. We're going to make enough compost that we can be putting out one ton of compost with all the right biology. So compost. There's our foods to feed our microorganisms. And there's the biology in that compost. You have to compost correctly. It can't go anaerobic. It has to get high enough temperature long enough to kill the pathogens and the pests because we don't want any of them in there. And we've got to make certain that this full um, contingent of the bacteria and the fungi, the protozoa and nematodes are present in that compost. So we proceeded to make that compost with them through the wintertime, come the springtime, went out there and put on one ton of compost per acre, which is barely a dusting if you think about it. They had severely compacted soil, so there were compaction layers at several um, depths, and so we tilled all of that compost in to make sure that the biology and that organic matter got moved into the soil. And then we treated the seed of the crop going into the field. We treated that with um, real good biology on that seed. Um, and as we planted the seed, we put um, a liquid form of the compost where we extracted the organisms into the furrow. So we made certain that we had really good biology surrounding that seed. Seed germinated in half of the time that they expected. Um, the cotyledons, first true leaf stage happened very rapidly. We were seeing the plants respond faster than any of their neighbors doing conventional practices. Um, so we went out at first true leaf stage and applied an application of really good biology and some really good um, uh, plant material, so food for the microorganisms. And at the end of the growing season, we um, harvested the corn or the soybean, whichever um, field the crop was in. All of the residues left over went down onto the surface of the soil, and that organic material was decomposed um, within a month. So we invited the um, we invited the um, sir, uh, USDA Extension Service agent to come out and take a look at the soil. And of course, now it's nice and rich, dark brown color. 
because we've produced a lot of organic matter. We've got good humic acids that have been produced by that biology through the summer. So much darker color to the soil. And the um, extension service person came out and went, wow, this is really great soil. What did you do? This is fantastic. This looks like a really good, rich loam. And, you know, the people that I was working with kind of looked at each other like, but this is pure sand. We haven't added any sill. We haven't added any clay into this soil. All we've done is make sure that as much organic matter as possible and all the organisms to do the decomposition and breakdown of that organic matter went into the soil. This is, as far as mineral content is concerned, this is just pure sand. Oh, no, no, no. That's not possible. Look at how rich and brown and look at the structure in this material. It's fantastic. What did you do? You must have dug up all the sand that's in this field and replaced it with a good loam. He could not believe that you could make a sand behave and feel like and produce the way a good silt um, loam would actually do. And yet, and this is in one season, is it? This is in one growing season, yes. That's amazing. Of course, they've That's... continued. They've continued to pro- improve over the years. Things have gotten better and better as time goes by. But uh, you know, in one growing season, you can do it. The trick is to make certain you make really good compost. Most of the time, you go out to buy compost from a landfill situation or from someplace that's taking waste material from various places. And they say they're making compost, but they aren't. It's still putrefied. It's still anaerobic. It's chock full of weeds and diseases and pest organisms. They have not gotten rid of those problems. And therefore, it's not compost. So you have to be careful. You can't just willy-nilly go out and buy something that somebody says is compost. You've got to know what a good compost looks like and smells like and what the biology is in that compost. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like with uh, the human digestive system. Someone says, oh, drink this fermented stuff. It's really good for you. It'll, it'll fix your gut microbiome. And so you, you take a drink and you don't have any beneficial effects from it. It didn't replenish anything. It didn't put any of the biology that you still need back into your digestive system. So, yeah, we've got, what do you call them, snake oil salesmen? They occur all over the planet. And you have to understand what you're really looking for in order to replenish whatever microbiome we're looking at. We've got to replenish it with the proper sets of microorganisms. And how do you know whether you're getting the proper set of microorganisms? And that's where having a microscope is very useful or you want a friend of yours to get the training to be able to look um, using that microscope at what's actually being added to the soil. Um, If you're not adding the right things, it's a waste of your time and money to do it. Right. So it sounds like there is uh, quite a bit of contention between um, what we now call conventional agriculture um, 
and uh, what you're talking about, which is in some ways revolutionary, in some ways it's common sense. Um, yeah. and, you, and it sounds like you've had a bit of contention in with um, uh, either chemical companies or conventional agriculture. Is that right? Yeah, quite a bit, especially when we first started doing this work back at Colorado State University and starting to assign roles, distinguish what each um, of these organism groups do in soil because the chemical people were, were just like, oh, this is not possible. This is just ridiculous. It can't work this way. Um, and it's kind of like, well, what do you mean? When has Mother Nature been out in any old-growth forest or healthy pasture or good you know, uh, meadow putting on inorganic fertilizers? When has that ever happened in the history of plants on this planet? Not until human beings came along and noticed hmm, all these spent munitions or the, all these waste munitions we have sitting around in big piles after World War One and World War Two. What do you do with them? Oh, throw them on the uh, agricultural fields and ooh, look at how much faster these plants grow. But when you do that, that's just really Mother Nature telling you that you don't have the right biology in the soil because if you actually had good biology in the soil and you put on an inorganic fertilizer, it would do nothing. You don't get any improvement in growth if you're actually dealing with a healthy soil when you put on an inorganic fertilizer. So what does that tell us about all of our agricultural fields? And it is very difficult for university folk who have been teaching the chemical approach to growing plants for their whole entire lives getting their research money from those very chemical companies there you know that's their support group and so if they admit that what they've been teaching their whole entire life what they've been researching their whole entire career has been a waste of time that's just not something that most human egos can deal with very well mm -hmm. their life has been a waste because they've gone down the wrong pathway. They've not gone down a pathway of sustainability or regeneration or really ultimately been in benefiting human beings. Look at the damage that's been done to our rivers and lakes and streams. Most people can't drink water out of a local stream or a local river or a local lake because there's too many toxic chemicals in it. The nitrate from the nitrate fertilizers or the phosphorus from the phosphate fertilizers have made that water unsafe to drink. That's definitely the case here in Perth. You know, they even suggest don't swim in the river three days after a, uh, a large rain event because of all the runoff from the Swan Valley and um, upstream a bit further. All those um, fertilizers, I, don't quote me on this, but it's something like 10 semi-trailer loads of nitrates per year coming down and about three semi-trailer loads worth of phosphates coming down the river each year. And it means that, you know, there's there are al algal blooms, there are r dead spots. In fact, they put um, big oxygen tanks in certain areas to pump pure oxygen into the river just so it doesn't go anaerobic or try, just try and eat some of that anaerobic um you know, bacteria up 
So could you actually explain to us, for, for people who aren't so scientific, what is the function of soil in terms of water and health? How, how, does, it, how does it clean the water and how does it, how does it um, suck up the carbon? Well, the, um, all those organisms in that soil uh, want those nutrients. They want to pull those nutrients inside their bodies and hold on to them and grow. So they've got to have a source of energy, carbon, from the root systems of a plant or from dead plant material going on to the surface of the, of the soil, uh, getting moved in to that soil through water, leaching those nutrients downwards in the water. So in order to hold all the nutrients in your soil, you have to have massive numbers of bacteria and fungi in your soil. And because there's such a massive diversity of different kinds of food resources coming into that soil, that means we have to have a massive diversity of different kinds of bacterial and fungal species. When we look at a good, healthy soil, we're looking at somewhere, and I'm probably underestimating these numbers as, as you know, um, people working with DNA analysis, so we can really do the sequencing and really determine how many species of bacteria and fungi, protozoa, and nematodes are present in a gram, a teaspoon, a gram of soil. What we're seeing is a minimum of 75,000 species of bacteria should be present in a gram of soil. And of course, the, the next gram of soil you look at is going to have a slightly different set of species and the next gram and the next gram. And, you know, when you were looking in an agricultural field, we should have several million species of bacteria just in a single field. We should be looking at 25,000 species of fungi per gram of soil. And I remember one Australian researcher that sat down and looked at me one day and said, "Dr. Ingham, you just uh, you've been you've been miscalculating the biomass of these organisms. It's not possible that you could have seventy five thousand species of bacteria per gram of soil." And I just looked at him and went, "What? <laughs> Do you know how many the normal number number just number of bacteria?" You know the normal number of bacteria per gram of soil? We're looking at somewhere typically around 6 billion bacteria per gram of soil. That's how many individuals are present. And of those 6 billion individuals, only 75,000 different species. And they were just, they were you've got to show me how you did those calculations. So we sat down and went through, you know, step by step, and they had to verify every single number I would, and finally prove to them that it's more than possible. There's plenty of space in a gram of soil to fit all of these microorganisms without any trouble. So that's, you know, there's some of that, you know, negativity coming back from people. They don't understand biomass of microorganisms. They don't understand the size of the, the creatures. Bacteria are on average about one micrometer in size. And fungi grow as long strands. They, they look like um, tiny, tiny threads. Uh, they're typically somewhere around three to maybe 10 micrometers across. 
but they will grow for miles and miles and miles through that soil completely um, moving and growing around plant roots. So we need to have this massive diversity of these microorganisms in our soils. We've got to have the protozoa. We have to have the nematodes. And, and if you have time, I'd, I'd like to go through and explain how these organisms interact to do all of these beneficial things for your plants. Yeah, yeah, definitely. We haven't really talked about the soil food web and how that works. Um, a comment I'd just like to make is that if there's one, if there's 75,000 species, families of bacteria in one gram, imagine how many there is on our body and in our body. I mean, yeah. that I someone was telling me the other day about, I can't remember exactly the percentage of our fecal matter that's actually dead bacteria. That's like, <laughs> yeah. how does that happen? Well, it's when you look at your own body. Um, you have so many more individual cells of bacteria and fungi in your body that your human cells, if I remember the number correctly, is only like 10% of the total number of cells in your body because bacteria and fungi comprise so much more. You've got more bacterial cells in yourself than you have cells of yourself. And soil is no different. Massive numbers of these microorganisms if the soil is healthy. Now, if it's dirt, you may have no biology, no beneficial organisms present. So when you think about how all of this system works, and it, it really took a lot of um, study and a lot of figuring out to document, but all of these interactions have been documented and are published in the scientific literature. You know, for the general public, uh, those scientific papers are deadly dull and boring. So I hope you'll be happy that I hope I'll try to make it a little more exciting. Sure. Uh, no tables of data and no, no more throwing big numbers around. So when you think about the system, a plant growing is going to have the above ground part of the plant and that plant, through the process of photosynthesis, is going to take sunlight energy and store that sunlight in the carbon-to-carbon -carbon bond that comes from two separate carbon dioxide mo molecules that that plant pulls within its body. So the plant is storing energy in that carbon-to-carbon -carbon bond. Of course, carbon dioxide number one, carbon dioxide number two, combining the two carbons together, that means the two molecules of oxygen gas are going to be released back into the atmosphere. Oxygen is a waste product produced by plants, thank goodness, because you and I need something to breathe. Nature cycles things. It's always fun figuring out how she's cycling things and it's just elegant the way she does things. So here we now have two carbons stuck together. That's a simple sugar. If your plant needs a three-carbon sugar, it just goes and grabs another carbon dioxide and does a little more photosynthesis, and now we've got a three-carbon sugar, or a four, or a five, or six, or 18, or 20, and however much your plant needs, your plant just goes through that process of photosynthesis. And those carbon chains are what we call, we human beings, call those sugars. 
of different sizes and different abilities as you change, increase the number of carbons in that sugar molecule. Well, so that's carbohydrates, carbon and hydrogen, yeah. basically. Right. So you've got oxygens and, and hydrogens on there too, but it's a carbon chain, basically. And really long carbon chains we call carbohydrates. Okay. But your plant cannot grow on sugar and carbohydrate alone. Your plants got to go get nitrogen, phosphorus, sulfur, magnesium, calcium, sodium, potassium, iron, zinc, all those other macro and micronutrients. And of course, in the world of, of plants, we argue about how many essential nutrients there are. My attitude is kind of, uh, we need them all. Um, I always love it when people you know, say, arsenic is not an essential nutrient. Well, if you didn't have arsenic in your body, your nerves would not function. So I kind of think that arsenic is an essential nutrient. We don't need much of it. If we get too much arsenic, oops, whoops, that's a problem again. So always, as with everything in nature, it has to be at the right balance. It's like human beings in water. You got to have enough water, but you better not have too much water because if you've got too much water, it's called drowning, <laughs> which is just as deadly as not having enough. So everything has to be in the right balance. So where is your plant going to go get all these nutrients from? Simple answer is it's going to pump those sugars down into the root system and it's going to release some of those sugars in order to wake up the bacteria and fungi in the soil around its roots. And so that plant is essentially telling that bacterium or this fungal species, or that bacterial species, whatever, to do what the plant needs. So the plant's putting out the sugar that says to this bacterium, hey, wake up, hey, fella, I need some mannose. Go out and find me this compound. I need nitrogen. Go and take this mannose and grow on it. Make your enzymes pull some of that nitrogen or magnesium or boron or zinc, whatever the plant needs, pull, make those enzymes, pull those nutrients from the rocks, from the pebbles, from the sand, the silt, the clay. The plant tells the bacteria and the fungi to make the enzymes to pull those crystalline, not plant-available nutrients into the bacterial and fungal biomass. And now all of those nutrients are in an organic form. So very important first step. Now, inside the bacteria and fungi, the plant still can't get those nutrients, but those nutrients are not going to leach. They're not going to be lost. They will never end up in your drinking water or your groundwater. So all of a sudden, don't worry about water coming off of your land. It should be clean. Any soluble nutrient, if you've got bacteria and fungi, any soluble nutrient is going to be pulled inside those bacteria and fungi faster than you can even imagine. So there's our cleanup committee. Those are the organisms that do that job of cleaning the water as, it's, as that water is going through the soil, passing by a bacterium or fungus, all of those nutrients are being pulled out and held and retained in the bacteria and fungi. And of course, where are most of the bacteria and fungi hanging out? 
right around the root because the plant's feeding those microorganisms with the sugars to wake them up and have them do the job they're supposed to do for that plant. So now we're, we're sitting in the pantry, if you will, because all these bacteria and fungi holding on to all these nutrients. And now how do we make those nutrients available to the plant? They've got to be converted into a form that the plant can take up. And the way nature does that is to attract into that root system those organisms that eat bacteria and fungi. So protozoa eat bacteria. The two beneficial groups of protozoa, the flagellates and the amoebae, are attracted into that root system because it's like a smorgasbord for them. Look at all these different species of bacteria. Whoa, we can have our choice. I like these kinds. You like those kinds. Great. You eat those. I eat those. And we're going to be happy campers. Um, so when that amoeba or that flagellate eats a bacterium, the concentration of nutrients inside that bacterium is so much higher than the concentration of nutrients in the amoeba or in the flagellate that it only takes a few bacteria or fungus for these uh, predators to eat and they're full to their limit and they're bursting with too much nitrogen, phosphorus, sulfur, magnesium, calcium, sodium, potassium, iron, zinc, all those different nutrients. Because, of course, when you eat a bacterium, you're not getting just nitrogen or just phosphorus or just one or two things. You're getting all of the nutrients. And so those protozoa are basically going to poop out soluble, plant-available nutrients right there at the surface of the root. And so the plant doesn't have to do any work at all. The only work the plant had to do was photosynthesis and then pump out the sugars that wake up the right bacteria and fungi to go up and grab the nutrients that the plant's going to need. So when the bacterium or fungus, when the bacteria are eaten by the protozoa, when the bacteria are eaten by bacterial feeding nematodes, when the fungi are eaten by fungal feeding nematodes or fungal feeding microarthropods, all attracted into that root zone because the plant is growing all the bacteria and fungi, massive quantities of these soluble plant-available nutrients are going to be released. And the plant just takes up what it needs. There's no energy required. It does not have to expend nutrients or expend energy to try to set up a diffusion gradient from several feet away and pull that fertilizer nitrogen into uh, the root systems. That's very expensive for the plant to do that. So can you explain to us what happens when we put um, inorganic fertilizer on? What, what happens um, when it starts to go through into the ground? So when we have inorganic fertilizers, those are soluble, inorganic forms of nutrients, and we spread it all over, not necessarily concentrated in any way around the root system of your plant. Where is your plant going to grow? And so in those places where your plant is growing, whatever nutrients are moving through in the water might be taken up by that root system, but your plant can't use a whole growing season's worth of nutrients in one day. 
it only takes up a small amount of those nutrients on a daily basis. And so most of the soluble nutrients, soluble meaning they are dissolved in water. That means as the water is moving through that soil, it's carrying those soluble nutrients with it. If you have the bacteria and fungi growing around that root system, the bacteria and fungi being voracious little creatures, and remember, we've got like 6 billion of them, of the bacteria, and we've got miles and miles of fungal hyphae growing in that soil, they're going to be able to grab to everything and hold it in their biomass. But if you don't have the biology, there's nothing to grab the most of those nutrients that you added as inorganic fertilizers. They wash right through beyond the root system of your plant and guess where all those nutrients are going to end up in your groundwater in your drinking water and now you're going to have to pay money to clean it up or you're not going to be able to drink that water you're not going to be able to swim in that water and that water becomes deadly we have to stop doing this idiocy this it's just incredible that we allow anybody to put inorganic fertilizers on our soil and not have the biology in that soil to take up those nutrients and hold them where they're supposed to stay. But that's the problem. You start putting on more than 100 pounds of an inorganic, soluble nutrient, and you're going to be killing the very organisms that are supposed to be tying those nutrients up and holding them in the soil. So when you think of, you know, most people, I can't do the conversions to kilograms per hectare all that easily, but it's more or less the same as pounds per acre. If we're putting out 450 pounds per acre of nitrate, that's way above the 100 pounds per acre, which is the maximum that you could be putting on and not kill your microorganisms. You see where we just killed all our microorganisms? We're turning that soil back into dirt. And so there's nothing there to grab onto the majority of those nutrients that are going to just wash through into your groundwater and your surface waters. The Ecological Society of America had a symposium back in 19, well, 2000, in the year 2000, where they showed around the world that 80% of the soluble inorganic nutrients applied to soil were lost in the first year after application. Because you've got to put on so much, cross your fingers and hope that those soluble nutrients are going to contact a root and be taken up and give you, give you the yield that you as a grower wants instead. Let's get the bacteria and fungi, protozoa, nematodes, microarthropods, earthworms back into the soil. Stop destroying water quality. Hold those nutrients in the soil where they're supposed to be. And you also have to think about the other things all these organisms do. When the bacteria and fungi are growing in huge concentrations around the root system because the plant's putting out the exudates to feed them, that means you are building a castle wall around that root. And there is no way a disease-causing organism, a pathogen, a pest, a disease can make it through the castle wall to attack the root system and cause disease, cause pest problems. So you don't see the reduction in 
yields because those root systems are protected. Well, just like below ground, above ground, we also have microorganisms growing all over the surfaces of the above ground part of the plant and protecting the above ground part of the plant against diseases and pests and insects and problem organisms. Yes, it does mean that when you take a bite of anything, you should be eating some of those bacteria, fungi, protozoa, and nematodes that are on those surfaces. And those are the very organisms that you should be swallowing and passing through your um, stomach because as soon as they get to the other side, they start colonizing your gut. And these are the very organisms that we need to replenish our gut microbiome. That's where they come from. That's where they've always come from. But we're destroying those organisms because we think our food has to be sterile. That is so insane. Food has never been sterile. We got to go back to making certain that the right sets of microorganisms are on our food. Okay, that means you have to avoid anaerobic, putrefied, poor, you know, not properly cleaned areas. But really, when we get done, when we get done sterilizing a surface, we need to come back in and apply the beneficial organisms that we need in our digestive systems so that we can be healthy once again. When you get this castle wall, it's gonna be protecting your plants. So let's get these organisms back into the soil and get them in the high enough concentration and the diversity that you need. These organisms also build structure within the soil. So diseases and pests cannot grow in your soil. Soil by definition doesn't contain pathogens and pests and disease-causing organisms. Because structure is built by the bacteria, they have the glues that make uh, microaggregates hold them together so they don't collapse, they don't wash away when water moves through the system. So bacteria can be happily inside their aggregates and grabbing nutrients from the water as it's passing by, cleaning up the water. So water that moves through soil will be clean. The nutrients will be held where we need them to be held. Fungi then, long strands, they bind the microaggregates together and build larger macroaggregates that you can see with your eyes. And so you can see the air passageways, the hallways that allow oxygen, water, and root systems to grow into the soil as deep as they can. And as long as you have aerobic conditions in your soil, the pathogens and the pests can't compete with your beneficial organisms. The good guys in soil have to be aerobic. They are strict aerobes. And so they cannot function if your soil becomes compacted, if oxygen can't be moving through that soil, if there's no air passageways and hallways, there's no caves, there's no tunnels, then that soil is going to go anaerobic. The bad guys grow and now you've got dirt instead of soil. So we have to main, allow these organisms to be there to do their job. They have to be getting get fed from the organic matter from your plant or from debris from dead plant material. We as human beings have to understand how to manage that soil so it remains aerobic. 
get your willing organic workers together to work for you so you don't ever have to worry about having disease and pest organisms causing problems. There's that's uh, so much that you talk about is the similarity between the human microbiome and the soil, the plant microbiome. Um, it's it's really fascinating to me, and the um, you're definitely one of the people who really brought that to my attention. Of wow, there's so much uh, similar. So, what would you say uh, for for example for me? I uh, we're renting, and so I have all my stuff in large ninety liter pots, um, or in my um, bioponic system. I do a not no till sort of um, method in these pots with Korean natural farming inputs because you can pretty much drink those as well. Um, so I don't I don't wash any of my uh, produce. I'm like I want all those microbes on there. Is, there, is that uh, something excess, acceptable in your eyes? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, uh, as long as I know that that's really soil in the pots or, or I've got really good biology in the hydroponic systems, um, I would much rather not wash anything. It's when you go out to a chemical field um, and you can't smell good soil, you smell insecticides and you smell chemical smells. Uh, there's no way any of that stuff has crossed my lips until I washed it to death because the only thing growing on those surfaces are the pathogens and the pests and the problems. And that's not good for me. Mm-hmm. Why would I eat any of that plant material? Because those plants are all sick. They're all stressed. They are not getting the nutrition that they require. And so what am I actually eating when I'm eating plant material grown in chemical systems? I'm going to have to, if that was my sole source of food, I would have to go take supplements. I would have to go buy vitamins and minerals to try to supplement what I'm not getting through my food. So we have to go back to exactly what you were describing. We've got to make certain that the biology is in that soil so the plants are getting all the nutrients that they require. You're going to have really good tasting, high flavorful foods, and it's you have to you don't have to eat as much um, if you're getting full nutrition in the plant material that you're consuming. Um, so probiotics, um, we need them in the soil. We need them in the foods that you're preparing. You got to have them, um, so you're consuming them and reestablishing that gut microflora all the time. Mm. So for someone who's just getting started um, in either fermenting food or in composting or growing a veggie garden, what's, what's one takeaway that you would give to them just to, to get started? Um, I, I think they need to, they need to take the online courses that we offer um, or, come and buy some of the books that we offer where we go through the whole food web where we explain um, the organisms and then how you compost because that's the central thing that you really need to be doing. Most people don't think about that every ecosystem is a bit different from every other ecosystem and you want to be um, growing those indigenous sets of organisms 
in your compost that are already adapted to your conditions and to the kinds of plants that you're already growing, hopefully. So when we make compost, you need to learn that most of the reduced waste that's available on the market is not compost. You have to learn how to compost correctly. So we have a couple classes, both online and in um, some of the compost um, manuals that we sell, uh, where you learn that the basic um, recipe for good compost is about 10% high nitrogen. As long as you're growing in the warm season, 10% high nitrogen, about 30% green plant materials, and 60% woody plant materials. Because we often have at least a few bacteria left in our soil, what we're really missing are the fungi and the predators. And so that 60% woody component uh, is really to make certain that we get a lot of really good fungi growing in that compost pile. You have several you have several choices of how to compost. You can do thermal composting, you can do uh, worm composting, and you can do static composting. And we go through how to do all three of those methods. Uh, most people choose to use the thermal compost because it's faster. Um, the methods that we use usually takes about uh, 21 days from pretty much start to finish of the compost pile. It doesn't take a couple years. It takes 21 days if you're doing things right. And so kind of all the rules, um, the temperatures that you need to reach, how long they should be at those temperatures or above, uh, what's the moisture level, how and when do you turn, we go through all of those things in the classes that we teach. Fantastic. Well, I'll definitely put the links up um, to all your stuff. But do you want to just share with us your website and um, where people can uh, see what you're doing? Yep. So the website, uh, my personal web website from for Soil Food Web is soilfoodweb.com. Uh, and you look uh, under Life in the Soil Classes, or you can go to the website that is Life in the Soil Classes, and that um, all lowercase, all one word, so lifeinthesoilclasses.com, and that takes you to the page that goes through all of the classes. If you want to get to the books that we sell, um, I would go to environment celebration. Dot com, and that's the farm in California where we're doing all of the research right now. Where for years and years and years, I've worked with growers, both um, you know, small scale in backyard gardens and very small uh, pots, uh, hydro, uh, um, hydroponics, uh, aquaponics, all of those kinds of systems. Um, these approaches work there as well, as well as working with larger and larger and, and larger size. Growers, I've, I've worked with growers that have uh, 150,000 hectares of productive land. Um, and how do you do things at that kind of scale? Uh, how do you do th at things at you know, 300 acres or six acres or, or five? And so working with growers, I've often come into their property, been given a small amount of their land, start getting them making compost and understanding what to do. And we apply the biology step by step. We go through that whole process with people. And in fact, we train people. We're looking for people who want to learn how to do this and then become advisors. We 
um, are a little bit desperate for advisors because uh, there's so many people who want to learn this and people are being so successful that it's kind of a no-brainer for most folks. Um, so um, we need, we're need we training people all the time. Um, and so we go through that process of doing that training and, and then letting people go. And um, we send uh, – people are applying every day to get an advisor, to have somebody help them, to have – um, a, a consultant come out and help them through this process of converting from dirt back into soil. And, um, yeah, so we've gone for over every scale and, um, doing this routinely, but you have to realize that that's not science. Yeah. When you're converting people and helping them stop paying for, um, pesticides, stop paying for the inorganic fertilizers and stop doing the unnecessary tillage and um, conventional agriculture. We reduce typically a, a reduce costs for a farmer by about 200000 to $500,000 on a three acre, 300 acre farm in the first growing season. And then it, you, you continue to save money year after year after year. Um, when we try to do science, we have to have always the comparisons. And when we work with growers, when they see that this process is working, they can understand how to do it and replicate this. Uh, typically, their whole farm goes biological, and then that's the end of the scientific experiment because to do an experiment, you have to have the control where you aren't doing your experimental study so at the farm in California, we're doing lots of experiments where we're maintaining growing plants in the usual fashion, um, you know, in the conventional system or without the biology being added to whatever that normal situation is. And then right next to those plots, we have the added biology where we aren't tilling, we aren't putting on toxic chemicals, we aren't applying pesticides or inorganic fertilizers and showing how much more yield we can get and, uh, and we're trying to accumulate the money so that we can do all of the nutrient testing in uh, the plant material. So the first year that we started, we had just a few small plots because we had just moved into the farm on to, in 2015 and so we didn't couldn't get enough started to really go lots and lots of acres so small areas the first year and we increased yields in the plus biology side by about 50% in that first year but then in the second year we could um, do larger areas and uh, we had the equipment then to mix that compost and get the biology into that soil down about two feet break up all the compaction layers in there make sure then um, we could plant the plants with the applications of biology in furrow and on the seeds and then um, twice during the growing season add the compost as a liquid form on the surfaces of the plants. And in that second year, we increased yields on average over all the different crops we were growing um, by 300%. Wow. Um, some of the crops we increased by 1,000% as compared to the conventional system. That's amazing. So that's that's uh, 
the different controls that you're doing, not just uh, NPK, right? You're doing some quote unquote organic controls as well. Yep. So we we want to have those comparisons for both the conventional toxic chemical approach as well as what you would, would be doing in an organic approach where you're adding um, mulch. Um, we're trying to differentiate between um, adding the biology and making sure you're getting it proper uh, versus uh, putting on um, compost that has gone anaerobic to some extent, you're not being careful about maintaining the right conditions to enhance the biology that you need to have. So we have both kinds of controls and always the plus biology side is doing much, much better. Mm -hmm. So hopefully this next year, we will have the money that we'll be able to do some nutrient testing in the plant material we yeah, you know, it's a startup farm and it takes a while to get going. For sure. Um, it sounds like exciting stuff. And uh, when I was talking to Dan Kittredge, he was talking about his, uh, they're coming out with a uh, little uh, meter that's going to, well, hopefully uh, test the n- nutrient density or at least a, a spectrometer that can test the color of if plants have lots of nutrients in them. Yep. And I'm hoping to see that functioning um, at the end of November. So hopefully he'll have a demonstration. We'll all be able to get our hands on some of those units um, because it would be so much easier if you could just take that little handheld unit, walk out to your plants and shine the UV light, get the reflectance coming back from the surface of your plant material and get a measure of nutrient concentration in your plant material, um, that would be so much easier than shipping samples off to, you know, University of California and um, waiting two or three months for them to come back and um, tell you the new difference in nutrient concentration. And, you know, the whole time you're worried about are they storing my plant material correctly? Are they maintaining the nutrients while we wait for these two months for them to actually get the samples done? Are are they being fair with the way they're storing that material? Or, you know, what are the anomalies that are being put into that data because um, it takes them so long to mm-hmm. process things? Not, not everyone has a mass spectrometer in their back pocket, do they? <laughs> No, no. The last mass spectrometer I played with was uh, uh, quite a quite a heavy machine. I think <laughs> all told, it was somewhere around a quarter of a ton. Is what is involved with the mass spec, with all of the um, ability to evacuate the chambers and run the um, gas streams through correctly. It's uh, yeah, not something you're hauling around in your back pocket. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you so much, um, Dr. Elaine Ingham, for explaining that stuff to us and for your time to come on um, The Probiotic Life and share with us. I hope that everyone's got something out of it. I I know that I have. Uh, So once again, thank you for your time. Uh, Any final words that you'd like to leave us with? Oh, um, you know, please go and and look at the websites. And we have a lot of information on the websites just for free. Um, If 
if you want to see the reference lists of scientific of the most recent scientific articles that have been published in this area, we try to maintain that list on our websites. And if you ever find yourself in Northern California near um, Oroville, Sacramento, um, please stop by the farm and come and see what we're doing and come and um, uh, join us in making good compost. That sounds like heaps of fun and I think I'll take you up on that offer. Okay, excellent. Thank you so much. Yep, thank you. This has been um, a pleasure to be able to chat with you. All right. You take care then. Okay, cheers. Okay. Bye. Ciao. I absolutely love nerding out about soil biology if you haven't guessed already. If you're not a soil nerd like myself, I hope that you at least learned something about how soil connects us to the world around us. Um, You can find out more about Dr. Elaine Ingham on her website, soilfoodweb.com. The other website she mentioned, lifeinthesoilclasses.com and environmentcelebration.com. I'll have those links in the show notes. And on the next episode, I interview Graham Sait. Wow, he's got some great things to say, so I'm excited to share that one with you. And if you have any suggestions or you want to hear a particular guest on the podcast, shoot me an email or check us out on Instagram. They've got some uh, great ideas about how to live a probiotic life. You can also search the hashtag probiotic life. But I hope this inspires you. And until next time, cheers. Thank you for listening to The Probiotic Life. You can find us on Facebook at The Probiotic Life, on Instagram, The Probiotic Life, and on our website, theprobiotic.life.